VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to another Tech Meme Ride Home bonus episode. I'm Brian McCullough. One of my favorite people to read every single week is the Wall Street Journal tech columnist Chris Mims. We talked about Chris's piece this week, positing that email was back, baby. And I read a piece that he did a while back about the new way of constructing super energy efficient homes. But when I did the email piece this week and remembered that he did a piece recently about how I'm more likely to get a burrito delivered to me for lunch from a self-driving vehicle than to have my self-driving wager come true by commuting to work myself in a robot car. I knew it was time to hit Chris up to come on the pod. And since he's a regular listener, he happily agreed. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. Now let's talk to the Wall Street Journal's Chris Mims. So excited to be here. Long-time listener, first-time uh, <laughs> subject. Well, look, having having said that, I hope you won't be offended if I start like this, but I want to start with your 
your email piece from this week, which, by the way, I, I think I even titled uh, one of my episodes, like, Emails Back, Baby. Um, but yeah. for, forgive me for starting like this. Can we be sure that email is back and this isn't a false positive? I mean, because because of what you and I do, you know, we everyone that we know and their mother has started an email newsletter <laughs> in the last 18 months or so. Um, so do you think that email is back for normal people too, or are we just noticing it because of what we do? I think that email is back in the sense that direct mail is back, which by the way is literally true if you talk to MailChimp about it, um, where these channels never really go away. And if you think about all of marketing as just reaching people whenever and wherever their attention is available. Uh, unless there is a wholesale shift away from a channel, people are always going to return to it and find a way to make money off of it. And I think that email is back in the sense that people on the editorial side, I mean, you know, Axios, Quartz, The Skim, and then years before Thrill List, discovered that if you create something that's thoughtful, that is reaching people directly, that they're seeking out in their inbox, that that's incredibly high value. I think it's, you know, radio is back in the avatar of podcasts. Right. And I think that's the sense in which it is back. If you look at the numbers, you know, the number of emails that get sent every year globally, like it keeps inching up, you know, how much of that is just, here's your receipt is not clear, but, um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely inside the same bubble that you are. Yeah, but, you know, when I see that somebody like Benedict Evidence of Andreessen Horowitz tweets once a week, uh, you know, my newsletter is out. Please join 110,000 other people in reading it. I think, huh, you know, he's an influential guy. Uh, and people are clearly consuming content in this format and enjoying it. Right. And you um, mentioned... Um... What's it, uh, Jet, how do you say his name? Judd Legum, Legum or whatever. Yes. Uh, yeah, another mm -hmm. successful um, newsletter guy. It's, but okay, so there were two things that I thought of when I was reading this. Like, number one, um, it, is this possible now? Because uh, number one, as we're talking about, like people are suddenly miraculously willing to pay for content, and this whole subscription model and Patreon model is it maybe especially for the newsletter part of it, is it, is it that? Is it that people finally have been um, culturated or whatever to, 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 to pay for stuff that they like and seek it out? That's part of it. I mean, a lot of these newsletters, keep in mind, are free, and a lot of the stuff that is being used for marketing purposes is, of course, no cost to anybody. Um, but in the terms of the Substack phenomenon, the subscription newsletter phenomenon, definitely people are willing to pay for it. You know, everybody talks about uh, ben Thompson and Stratechery, uh, I mean, <clears throat> he, he makes between one and $10 million a year. He won't say on an email newsletter and the top paid email newsletter creator on Substack makes, uh, north of $400,000 a year. I mean, that's unusual, right? Like they're the head of this very long tail, but uh, I do think with the Patreon phenomenon, I mean, I think I heard on your podcast, what is it? Patreon's going to hand out half a billion dollars mm -hmm, mm -hmm. next year. And, you know, we're all used to subscribing to stuff. And um, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. We're ready to pay for content. And I think part of the reason we're ready to pay for content is the stuff that's free is not as good. 
Well, then the other thing that I thought that I, I didn't see in your piece is I wonder if this is only possible because spam is not as bad as it used to be. There, in no way is spam solved. But the, the you know, even 10 years ago, like going to your inbox was just such a just a horrible experience. And like, I wonder if, you know, because we're all sort of on Gmail-ish like things now and spam is sort of tamed a bit. I wonder if maybe as you're describing, going to your inbox is more pleasurable suddenly, fascinatingly than, than going to other things like feeds. For sure. I saw somebody raving today about the, uh, whatever, the, the AI or the, or the ML that, they have put into Outlook, which is getting better at not just sorting out spam, but just sorting out spammy PR pitches, for example. And obviously, Gmail is good and very trainable in terms of getting stuff into those different tabs. And I saw one study that said, you know, when that rolled out, that actually increased people's engagement with that stuff. Because now, oh, thank you for organizing it for me. And it's, you know, one click unsubscribe to all the junk. And, uh, you know, I'm only getting the stuff that I actually care about. I mean, email is this uh, you know, Taylor Lorenz's excellent piece about inbox infinity in the Atlantic, notwithstanding, if you pay attention to and use email, and I think everybody who's a professional has to, unless your company is entirely slack, but then I don't see how you deal with vendors, the time that you put into email can make it a really, you know, exquisite tool. And I don't think we have that same power with, uh, you know, social media being controlled by these algorithms. Like, you know, it just email gives you all the knobs. And if you care about communication, you will use your powers like an audio engineer to adjust all those switches and make sure you're getting the stuff you want. Right. That, so th 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 those are the other two parts that obviously you touched on that, that totally rang true for me. So number one, um, it's almost like you you have more control in email. So you can almost, if, if you do a little bit of work, you can self-select for pleasure as opposed to just, you know, put your head under the deluge of, of crap on, on, on the feeds and the social media. But as you pointed out, it's also, again, going to the other side of the table. Um, if, you know, we, we all were sold this bill of goods about social media, that it's all about amplifying your message and it's broadcasting your message or whatever. But the reality is, is that um, you're at the mercy of the algorithms that can throttle your reach or in the worst case scenario, you know, shadow ban your message or something like that. So, Funny enough, good old email is actually still a tried and true way to reach people at, with your message completely unfettered. Yeah, I wouldn't say unfettered because definitely I heard from a lot of email marketers after writing this and they were like, well, it's the perennial debate, more email or better email. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, that said, like if you have your sort of dedicated readers, you can reach them directly and consistently. And I think most important is once you've built up that channel, that is not going to change. Whereas with Facebook, you know, you play by their rules and next week there's an algorithm overhaul. And it's the same thing with SEO, which is just a constant game of cat and mouse. Every time you have that algorithm interceding, you can build, you know, a business on a particular channel and then just get smacked down when the, channel changes. And that has happened to marketers, of course, who continue to adapt. But obviously, this is also why BuzzFeed just had to lay off 15% of their staff. It's because of Facebook algorithm changes. It's why Upworthy went away before then. It's why, you know, Mashable imploded after its attempt to pivot to video. Every single time that algorithm changes, you know, people are caught on their back foot and 
that just doesn't happen with email. Email is that it's a hard channel to build. It takes a long time. It's slow, but it's like compound interest. It just gets bigger and bigger and it's never going away. But then as coming, bringing back to the consumer side of the table, as you pointed out, which was totally true and so obvious once you pointed it out to me, um, the, the unsubscribe link at the bottom of emails actually works. And again, you know, as compared to putting your face in front of the fire hose of a social media stream, if you, the unsubscribe link is a quiet hero because if there's annoying memes or messages or topics on social media, it's harder to funnel that stuff out and, and organize and things like that. But you can get annoying stuff to shut up in your email inbox. Right. And it's not going to get offended that you unfollowed or muted <laughs> it for sure. Right. Yeah, right. It, it works. It works. I mean, there's no, it's funny. Somebody told me, Oh, I, I thought that was an industry standard. And I was like, no, it's, it's the market working for once where, you know, if enough of those emails get marked spam, the companies sending them have problems with ISPs just automatically marking their marketing or whatever emails as spam and then real uh, or dedicated readers not getting it. So there's this incredibly powerful incentive of staying on those white lists that drives what for nine out of 10 emails is a very straightforward unsubscribe process. And for the one out of 10 where it's a hassle and it's like, hey, okay, well, you got to log in with a password that you don't remember and it's going to take you five minutes just to unsubscribe to this email. Really, the unsung hero isn't the unsubscribe button. It's that little mark is spam button. Mm. Well, again, uh, it's not solved, but the fact that your inbox is a lot it's a lot more manageable than it used to be 10 years ago or so. Um, okay, so uh, while I've still got you, let me shift gears real quick to another piece that I don't think I talked about on the show, but it has been something that has gotten on my radar lately. Your piece was titled, Why Your Ice Cream Will Ride in a Self-Driving Car Before You Do. And if long-time listener to the show, you know my ongoing <laughs> when, when our self-driving car is going to be real in my life sort of wager. Um, but it's it's gotten on my radar that, okay, it's I'm going to get, I'm likely to get a burrito delivered to me for lunch sooner than I'll be able to commute to work in a self-driving car. We just had yesterday, Amazon, there was a headline that they're testing their Amazon Scout on real roads in Washington State. Um, so... In your piece, it, it's interesting. It's almost the reverse of like the self-driving car thing in the sense that it's simpler. Like there, you don't have to worry, like who cares if your burrito gets a little must or whatever as opposed to someone being hurt. So you can do things like put safety on the outside as opposed to safety on the inside. I found that fascinating. Yeah, and there's a federal span, uh, standard and the, you know there are state standards as well for low speed vehicles, you know, anything that's 25 miles per hour and less, <clears throat> you know, it can't go on roads generally where the speed limit is over 35 miles mm -hmm. per hour. Those vehicles are not subject to the safety standards, which all automobiles are subject to. And that's, you know, people say, Oh, cars just all look the same. Look, there's two reasons for that. One is um, fuel standards demand that they be aerodynamic, roughly teardrop shaped. And then number two is safety standards demand that they have another uh, totally contrary design constraint to make them you know, bigger and stronger and everything. And at the intersection of the two of those is every blob-shaped car ever. And this 
standard lets you evade that completely. So you have a company like Neuro, which creates this, you know, 25 mile per hour thing that can drive on roads. It only carries groceries. You know, it can sacrifice itself in the event of a crash. Everybody you talk to who does autonomous on-road delivery uh, talks about that possibility. Just the thing should just atomize if, uh, you know, a butterfly lands on it because you want to save the pedestrian or the car. And then you have the on-sidewalk delivery, right? Like you've got Starship, like they're very popular uh, in the UK in the, in the like one town where they are. And they just rolled out on a university campus in the past week. And I think, and then you talk to Postmates, for example, and, and it's so fascinating because part of the reason that this all works is it's just an easier kind of autonomy. If a Postmates robot freezes up and stops in the middle of the sidewalk, nobody dies. And mm. a remote monitor can, you know, kind of log on and, and help it navigate whatever situation it couldn't handle. Whereas, you know, if you're trying to drive human beings on a road at 40 miles per hour and there's construction and it's a challenge even for a human to navigate that. What does your autonomous vehicle do? You know, that's why I, I think that, um, you know, Waymo is the standard bearer here and they're kind of hinting at, well, you might never have like <laughs> level four autonomy in mm, our lifetime. Like, mm -hmm. you, you, the most you can get is like most of the way there. And then you've still got to have a human who can at least, uh, you know, over a remote connection, jump in, in, in situations that are, that are hairy or difficult. Like it's just so much easier to move a thing to the point that I think that the real barrier here is going to be that, uh, you know, American cities, streets and sidewalks are just not that friendly to pedestrians, to cyclists, to people in wheelchairs. And, uh, you know, that's what we need to make this delivery really work. Like nothing is going to help Starship Robotics more than uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act in terms of making cities accessible to those robots. Okay, so that's because you said something really interesting in the piece about that too. So I, you know, again, I'm imagining I'm I'm here in Dumbo and you know it's cobblestone roads and terribly maintained sidewalks. But then in in your piece, you 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 pointed out, which rings true to me, that like in suburban environments. Uh, I'm thinking of like, you know, I grew up in Florida, like sidewalks are super underutilized pieces of infrastructure. So again, it's the bias of where I live, you know, but um, maybe maybe the infrastructure is already there in large swaths of the country, possibly, because sidewalks are, are, are built and then a lot of people don't drive or walk and run on them all the time. So maybe in suburbs, this can be real sooner than we think. I think that's possible. I think the challenge there, of course, is the lower the density, the harder it is to make this really work and be profitable. And, um, you know, we just won't know. And there's there's so much math that is going to go into making that work. And it's going to be so weirdly contingent on all kinds of other factors, like how close is the nearest fully automated warehouse? Because don't forget that you have Kroger, America's largest uh, grocery company still, um, you know, has an exclusive contract with Ocado, which makes fully automated or nearly fully automated grocery warehouses. And, you know, I, I guarantee you that in the next two years, you will see an integration between a fully or a partially automated warehouse 
company of some kind and you know some delivery service whether it's uber or postmates you know it's some fully or partially autonomous delivery service and you know what efficiencies pop up there and there's so many different models so you just the number of different network topographies is mind-boggling like imagine if fully automated small local warehouses turn out to be viable and then that gets everybody in starship robotics range of you know an online only grocery what happens you or know, like all the what all about the, all the corner markets or gas stations become those sort of like node delivery warehouse sort of things yeah right so hybrid retail so it's an actual yeah. store with this thing bolted on target is doing that walmart is doing that um amazon is clearly trying to do that with whole foods and then you have uh, these sort of mixed modality delivery options. So, one, so what Postmates is doing with their robot is they will actually get the goods um, from a dense urban area, like imagine Market Street in San Francisco where traffic is awful. And so they will utilize the sidewalk there to get goods onto Postmates robots, which will then all arrive at the same time at the vehicle of a human driver who's then going to take those deliveries to some far-flung suburban location. So don't forget that the robot itself doesn't have to make the entire trip. So when you just imagine all the potential combinations of business models and types of robots on-road, off-road, you know, eventually flying drone type delivery stuff, like it is truly, truly mind-boggling. Like it is going to take us decades or centuries to explore that full parameter space and come up with a totally new model for right because i'm just commerce i'm just even imagining like so your usual your ups truck as you see now just uh, rolls up to a location and boom like 30 different little children uh, run off to actually make the deliveries on their own and that sort of thing um real quick is just give me a, a a quick sketch of this is there a waymo of this space or is waymo the waymo of this space or like is are are there people that are doing this exclusively or is any anybody that's in autonomy kind of dabbling in this as well? They're all dabbling. Uh, obviously everybody, you know, who has a autonomous vehicle is like, eh, maybe it could be used for deliveries too. Um, you know, the ones that are, I, I count at least a half dozen, what I would call full stack robot delivery companies. Um, and I can't remember all, you know, it's like ones you've heard of like Starship and Neuro and ones you haven't like AutoX. Um, so, you know, which one of those is going to be the Waymo of this? I, I have no idea. I mean, definitely Starship has a, an early lead in terms of the on sidewalk stuff and Neuro does as well. But it's just, it's absolutely not clear, how, you know, if there, there could be some really fast moving uh, second movers in this space partly because I think the autonomous technology is just that's going to come down in price so fast. You're going to, you know, all these enabling technologies like solid state LIDAR and just, you know, all the stuff that NVIDIA is doing with shrinking and making more power sipping their systems for doing autonomy. You could just see this, uh, this Cambrian explosion of different companies trying to do it. Like you saw with scooters. 
Well, the funny thing is, every time I visualize this, like you just made me visualize the UPS truck, and then there's you know these thirty little bots that that go out instead of tra- driving around to make all the deliveries. It always reminds me of the Death Star in the original Star Wars, or, or <laughs> those little box bots that are always running around, running into people's ankles and things like that. It, it'll be hilarious. Like if, if that actually, so then, right. If five years from now, there's little, little death star, like box bots running around on the sidewalks that you've got to worry about tripping over. Uh, like I'll find that hilarious. I think. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you also keep in mind that there's the in building component. So literally that is also happening and that could happen even mm-hmm. sooner. Like if you think it's easier to navigate on the sidewalk than on the street, um, you know, as long as you can navigate an elevator and stuff like buildings are kind of yeah. optimal yeah you know, so, so all your postmates deliveries all show up at the front desk and then it all gets distributed throughout your skyscraper by the little bots well and then you got to start designing the skyscrapers to accommodate for that easier yeah okay all right amazing <laughs> before i let you go um you have an amazing podcast that i am a fan of that i listen to every episode called instant message so if no one's heard of instant message that's listening right now please tell them about instant message and why they should listen it's a message is me and uh, David Pierce and Joanna Stern uh, having fun for a third of it, um, telling you things that you can't get anywhere else because it's fascinating details from our respective reporting that never make it into print. Uh, and then there is another third that is David interviewing a reporter who is gone mind-numbingly deep on a topic mm. and, again, is going to tell you something that you will literally hear nowhere else, even in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. So that's amazing. And then the last third, and I know this is 133%, is, uh, you know, again, uh, David interviewing somebody really fascinating uh, who, you know, you you may have heard somewhere else but uh, never interviewed by Mr. Pierce with his uniquely penetrating sixteen minutes. He had he had a great uh, interview with uh, somebody at CES, uh, one of those uh, scooter people, one of the seg- Segway guy, I think that I was really jealous of because it got really deep in, into stuff that I had never thought about. Uh, but also, I'm going to say this: the reason I'm a fan is because it's fun, and there are certain tech podcasts that I used to be a fan of. Uh, years ago because they were fun and then they got less fun. You guys do have fun, which is what makes it great. 